church. There should be one in front of you. Just grab that. Turn to page 818. Otherwise, turn to Matthew chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 24 to 30. And then I'm going to go over to verse 36 and read down to verse 43. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not know good, uh, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So his servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at a harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then skipping down to the explanation in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy has sowed, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping, and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word, for there is no word like your word. Every word of yours is true. It's good. It's right. Your word is a lie. These are not just old words from couple of millennium ago, these words are living and active. They are powerful. And so our prayer is that as we look at these words, that you, by your Spirit, would be at work in our hearts, changing us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is yet another agricultural parable. The parables, this is now our third agricultural parable. We'll eventually move on. Uh, 
But parables are comparisons. They offer a comparison. This is a lot like that. This is similar to that. Some sort of earthly, ordinary story or thing is making a comparison to some sort of spiritual, heavenly truth or reality. The parables are primarily about the kingdom of God, so it's taking an earthly or ordinary story and and or thing, and it's telling us something important, something precious, something beautiful, something good about the kingdom of God. And yet, even though these are comparisons, parables have a function of actually concealing the truth from those who have an unbelieving heart toward Jesus. Those who have an unbelieving heart toward Jesus, uh, they're wondering this morning, why is it that I planted flowers in my flower bed, and in addition to the flowers that I planted in my flower bed, there are weeds springing up in my flower bed. I don't know what to do with the weeds in my flower bed, and so I'm glad that Jesus has given us yet another uh, horticultural talk. That's not the point of the parable. I, too, struggle with the weeds and. And, it, and, I, it, and it's like, as I went to bed last night, someone got up and sowed weeds in my flower bed. But, but that's not the point. It's, it, it, if that's all we walk away from, it reflects something of an unbelieving heart toward Jesus. And this comparison story actually con- conceals from us the real point that Jesus is trying to make. The disciples track him down again after the crowds leave and And uh, they reflect a willing, devoted heart who seek out Jesus to understand. And any and all who come to Jesus and seek him and seek to ask him to give insight and understanding, he will in no way turn away. His disciples reflect that. Well, This is the third agricultural, horticultural, I don't know what we would call it precisely, uh, a parable. Uh, All three parables thus far um, have had some of the same host of characters in them. There's been sowers, and there's been seeds, and there's been soils. And and yet while they have the same elements, uh, uh, I would suggest to you and I to be careful because there are different explanations affiliated with each of these stories. the meaning of the seed in one parable is not the meaning of the seed in another parable. The significance of the sower in one parable is not the significance of the sower in the other parable. The, who, the, who the sower is in one is not the who the sower is in the other. And So it might be helpful, at least it, it's going to be helpful to me to try to keep my own self straight. It might be helpful to, even though we're talking about soils and seeds and sowers, uh, to maybe differentiate how each of the three parables thus far are deploying those comparisons in their own unique ways. So, for instance, three weeks ago, out of Luke chapter 8, we talked about the parable of the soils And uh, some of the dynamic in that parable is now different than the dynamic here in this parable in Matthew 13. 
In, in three weeks ago in, the, in Luke 8, we were talking about good soils and bad soils. We're not talking about good soils and bad soils this morning. We're talking about good seeds and bad seeds this morning. Whereas three weeks ago in the parable of the soils, uh, Satan is, is alluded to, but he's the one who comes and snatches good seeds from bad soils. But, but now here in, in this parable, Satan is at work as well, but he is now sowing bad seed in the field. Three weeks ago, we were explicitly told that the, um, the good seed is the word of the gospel, the word about Christ. Now here in this parable, in Matthew 13, we are told that the good seed uh, is really those into whom the good seed, uh, good, uh, good soil, it's good seed has been sown. So it's talking about, if you would, Christians. So whereas three weeks ago we talked about the, the, the seed being the gospel, uh, now this morning the good seed is those who have received the gospel. Whereas three weeks ago we made more of an emphasis upon the different soils or different hearts that the gospel comes into, uh, now uh, this morning we're not talking so much about different kinds of soils, but we're talking about the different kinds of seed that's sown into the soil. Or from last week, the parable of the growing seed. Last week, uh, it was um, just like, um, uh, like similar to this week. Um, it, it's, it's about sowing and reaping, but whereas last week the emphasis was more on the fact that Christ's followers, people like you and I, are the ones who do the sowing and the reaping. But here in this parable this morning, another facet to the story is added. It's not so much of an emphasis upon our sowing and our reaping, but it's upon Jesus who is the sower and Jesus who is the reaper. Last week, it was more about um, while the sower sleeps, the, the, the good seed grows. Where here in this parable, while, the, while the, the servants of the sower sleep, the enemy comes into the field and sows bad seed. So the, the, there's, both, there's sleeping going on in both parables. This parable, particularly having maybe somewhat differentiated between the past two parables and this one, this parable explores an aspect of sowing and reaping that is unlike last week's parable, not completely unlike last week's parable. They both talk about sowing and reaping, but the emphasis here this morning seems to be upon Jesus being the one who is the sower and the reaper. It does allude to those who assist him, but the emphasis is more upon him as the sower. But it's also about an alternative or another uh, sower, the devil. Jesus is sowing, and the devil is sowing in our parable this morning. They are sowing two very different kinds of seeds. Jesus is sowing his people into this world, and the devil is sowing his people into this world.
And so that's what I would really like us to spend maybe a bit more minutes considering this sowing and reaping that is occurring where it is occurring. It, what is the realm or the context in which there is both wheat and weeds? Or uh, King James would say wheat and tares, so, which are weeds. So, um, I would direct us to really verses 37 and 38 emphasize the points of this story. It clarifies the types of comparisons that are being made. In particular, verse 38 clarifies for us where this sowing is occurring. Where is Jesus sowing his seed? And where is the devil sowing his seed? And it says explicitly in verse 38 that the field is the world. There are, there are seeds being sown in this world that we're living in right now. Jesus is sowing his seed, and the devil is sowing his seed. I say that because it seems to be that when we read this parable, we often immediately jump to a discussion about church. I don't think this parable is talking about the church, talking about the kinds of seeds that are being sown within the church. He doesn't say the field is the church. He says that the field is the world. Now, many, I think, misfire uh, on understanding this parable because they seem to... to think that this is talking about the different kinds of seed that are sown into the church. Many seem to think that this parable discusses that how, how Satan plants counterfeit Christians in the visible church. False professors. And while it is true, while it is true that not everyone who belongs to a local church. Not everyone, everyone who is a member of a local church is truly a Christian. I don't think it's the point of this parable to discuss how believers and unbelievers coexist within the church. That's a discussion that the Bible has elsewhere, but I don't think that's the discussion that this parable is wishing to discuss with us. This is, this is talking about something more broadly than how do Christians and non-Christians coexist in the church. This is more broadly discussing how do Christians and non-Christians coexist in the world, in the broader culture that we, that we live in. If we make this parable about the church rather than about the world, then I think we look past what Jesus has explicitly said, that is the field that I'm talking about, that I'm sowing and the devil is sowing in is the world. The field is the world, not the, not the church. Uh, because I, if, we, if we make it the church, then all of a sudden we start colliding with other things that are said in other places in the scripture. The scriptures do not instruct the church to be complacent to false pr 
professions in the church. The church, uh, when evidence is clear of, of, of there being a counterfeit Christian, someone who lacks evidence of the new birth, then the church is called not to just let it lay until the end, but the church is called to make a disciplinary judgment in regard to that, that the church would practice a corrective disciplinary judgment with the aim of bringing about repentance. We don't have time to go down that path this morning, but, but I would just direct us to passages like 1 Corinthians 5. You would write that down and look that up, maybe your own self later. Or in Revelation chapter 2, in reference to the church at Thyatira. Or even Paul's words about Hymenaeus and Alexander in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. In other words, the, when the church does... Uh, encounter those who, who profess Christ but lack the evidence of that reality, then the church is to, in fact, uh, render a disciplinary judgment in regard to them. And, 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 but that's not what this passage says because that's not what this passage is pertaining to. This passage is pertaining to, we live in a world... This is not catching any of us by surprise in that sense, in which there are believers and there are unbelievers. And what is the posture to be of believers in relationship to unbelievers in this present uh, dimension of time and age in which we live in? We, we, if we've been born again, if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are no longer of the world but we are still in the world. We are to be salt and light before the world. But we are not to look like the world in terms of how we think and how we talk and how we behave and how we emote and how we prioritize. We are to be the people, borrowing from last week's parable. We are to be people who are sowing the seeds of the gospel in the lives of people around us. We're living in this world because in that sense, we are to be sowing the seed of the gospel into people's lives in this world. But here's the good news, and this is what this week's parable brings to a a more clarifying reality that as we are doing what we're directed to do, sow the seeds of the gospel in the lives of people around us who are in this world, even as we are in this world, but we're not of this world. They are of this world. But as we sow the seeds of the gospel in their lives, then Jesus is also at work sowing seeds of his word in people's lives. You see, it is, the, it is Jesus through the explaining of the gospel, but it is Jesus who creates a people for himself. It is Jesus who takes the seed of the word of God, the parable from three weeks ago, and he creates his seed, his people, from the seed of the word of God. Now, we are to be a people who are out of step with this world in terms of our values, in terms of our 
cultural perspectives. Uh, we, we are to think differently and look differently uh, than this world does, even while we are living in this world. In fact, we, we will look from this world's perspective like really weird, odd, peculiar people. When Diane and I were in New Orleans uh, last, the uh, week before last, at the Southern Baptist Convention, of course, actions were taking at, taken at the Southern Baptist Convention in regard to trying to clarify the biblical understanding of forbidding women from being pastors. And uh, our culture does not hear that very well. In fact, um, uh, Diane and I were at uh, uh, Café du Monde having a beignet, which if you've never had a beignet, but anyway, I digress. But. And uh, I, guess I, just, I guess I looked the part, but some guy came up to me and said, uh, so, are you with that Baptist convention thing? Uh, yeah. As powdered sugar is dripping from my, you know, it's a beignet thing, but anyway. And, and he goes, uh, so uh, you guys hate women, don't you? He goes, what is it with women? They inferior? Is that what you think? They're inferior? You hate them? Uh, okay. So I got up from the table where I was sitting with Diane, and I, I went over and started talking with him. And so I uh, tried to explain to him that uh, the scriptures do not teach that women are inferior. The scriptures do not teach anything other than that men and women each equally share the same dignity and value as men do. And yet men and women are different, and God has given different roles and places, and the scripture itself uh, forbids a woman from teaching and exercising authority over a man, and we went back and forth for a while, and finally, I, I guess he just figured this guy is about as bullheaded as you can get, and so he just stood up in a very angry way and stormed off and said, you're crazy. So we, we will look crazy to the world if we espouse viewpoints that reflect a biblical understanding of gender and masculinity and femininity and sexuality and those sort of things. And yet, even at the end of the day, what I want you to understand even more importantly than that, you and I need to be that salt and light and try to kindly show the goodness and the beauty and the truthfulness and the rightness of, of a biblical ethic, at the end of the day, you and I ought to be more known for how we are committed to sowing the seeds of the gospel in people's lives and not simply the stance that we would take on these sort of biblical, ethical, moral issues. We should take the stand. We should be uh, faithful to the biblical witness in these things because these things are good and true and beautiful and lovely and right. And, and, and yet at the end of the day, I, I just grasp that I am talking to a blind person in whom the seeds of the devil have been sown. And I'm trying to describe what is true and what is beautiful and what is lovely 
And the problem is, is that a blind person cannot truly see what is true and what is good and what is lovely. A blind person needs their eyes to be opened. And that is why then we would have to run to the message of the gospel. In fact, I, when, he, when he stormed off and walked away, I did not feel happy about the termination of that conversation. In fact, I felt a rebuke even in my own heart that I didn't run to Jesus before he ran away. Because at the end of the day, it, it, while we affirm a biblical sexuality and a biblical morality on these things, at the end of the day, we must be a people who are known to sow the seeds of the gospel. Because when we are sowing the seeds of the gospel, the sower is sowing his seeds in people's hearts and lives. He is opening blind eyes. He is enabling blind people to see. And when people see Jesus and the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of God, then people can begin to see anything and everything else rightly. And so we want to announce who Jesus is and what he has done for when we are feebly bumbling and fumbling our way through explaining who Jesus is and what he has done, then guess what Jesus is doing? He is taking our bumbling and fumbling words and he is sowing his word, his life in people's hearts. Now I'm going to pick on him again. I'm going to take him out of context. Uh, but Carl this morning in Sunday school said the Apostle Paul wasn't a very impressive preacher. And he's right, because Paul himself says that about himself. That was, Paul didn't use clever tactics uh, in order to cajole or manipulate people. He just explained who Jesus was and what Jesus did and the significance of that and what people are to do with that. And as Paul uh, unimpressively shared the gospel, then guess what happened? Jesus, on a whole other realm and level, by the power of the presence of his spirit, gets in the middle of that explanation and changes hearts and lives. Opens eyes. And so that's what we must do because that's what Jesus does. And when we do what Jesus has asked us to do, then we can count on the fact that Jesus, who always does what he says he will do, will do what he says he will do. And so we are called to announce and to proclaim who Jesus is and what he has done. Now, I guarantee there is a backstory to who Jesus is and what he has done that, um, that uh, sets back the people that we talk to they will possibly hear what we are saying as mean and hateful and judgmental because a part of the backstory to why Jesus came and why he did what he did uh, was that we have to announce the reality that without Jesus, we are each all still under the wrath and condemnation of God. And when you and I tell somebody that they are under the wrath and condemnation of God, they hear us condemning them. You just might as well plan on that, that you're a hater, you know. Um, and um, and it's, 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 it's not that we relish explaining that to people. It's not like, <laughs> you, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna perish. <laughs> it just makes me tickled, you know. No, we're, we're not creeps like that. 
But if we really want to explain the beauty of what Jesus has done, we have to explain the glory, the, the goriness of our present condition without Jesus. Why is it we need Jesus? Freddie preached two weeks ago from John chapter 3, and there's a passage in John chapter 3 uh, uh, that uh, he weaves this all throughout, but the last verse of that passage says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. We are going to perhaps sound odd and weird and strange to this world when we announce that apart from Jesus, God's wrath is remaining upon people. We're announcing that because we don't want that to be the case. We're wanting people to come to Jesus to escape the wrath of God. And, and, and yet they will, they will potentially mishear what we say. And yet we sow those seeds of the gospel in people's lives this world that we're living in, all the while the devil has been and remains to sow his seeds in this world. Now, what are we to do with that? I would suggest to you that the flow of this parable, when it, when it's, when it warns us to not uh, uh, uproot the weeds in this world, because in uprooting the weeds in this world, we will also unbeknownst to us, uh, uproot wheat in this world. So that's what you see. It's not talking about the church. There are disciplinary procedures in the church, but it's talking about our regard for the world. You and I are not to deploy methods of violence to this world and its Silly thinking and wrong living. We are to not use forced coercion to root out evil in this world. We are called in this current age to sow the seeds of the gospel in this world and to reap a harvest as the fields are white unto the harvest. Because as we sow the gospel, the gospel is that which creates Christians. The gospel takes people out of this world uh, so that they are, no, they are no longer of this world. Even while they remain in this world, it creates a whole nother species Vengeance is never the tool of the church. Now, the Lord has given the sword, the literal sword, to civil magistrates, to government, and they are given to that sword to put down evil. Uh, but that is not the church's work. The church is to, is to sow the seeds of the gospel in the same field that the devil is sowing his seeds into. And those to whom the devil is sowing his seeds into are, in fact, enemies of the church. What are we to do with enemies of the church? We are to pray for enemies of the church. I think, I think it wouldn't be improper for us to pray that the enemies of the church would not prosper in their wickedness. But more importantly, we would pray that the enemies of this church of the church have the seed of the gospel sown into their hearts and lives. 
I mentioned the Apostle Paul a while ago, you know, that unimpressive preacher that he is. And uh, take the Apostle Paul, for instance. Before he became more known as Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was a persecutor of the church. He was an enemy of the church. When Stephen was preaching the gospel in the book of Acts uh, and Stephen's uh, crowd stoned him to death, uh, the, the, the notion we're, that we're left with is Paul was kind of almost overseeing uh, that demise of Stephen, that he was kind of a head honcho. And we certainly know that on the road to Damascus, he's heading to Damascus to grab up some more Christians and to hurt some more Christians. And what if the church said, you know what, 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 what we need is, is we need us a trained elite hit squad to neutralize him as a threat. If the church picked up the sword of violence in order to shut Paul up. Sometimes we think that way because we, 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 we think like the world in that way. We think, well, the world's doing pretty good with its tactics. Let's borrow some of their tactics and deploy those things. And, and yet we're not to use the world's tactics. Praise God that the early church did not deploy an elite trained hit squad to neutralize the apostle Paul. Praise God that the gospel that Paul heard Stephen sowing into his heart, Jesus, the true sower of the word, met with Paul on the road to Damascus and planted the true seed of the gospel in his heart and converted him. The greatest, perhaps, of all the apostles, the one who's written more of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Spirit of God for us than any other one person. Uh, he, he, was, he was handled, he was taken care of, not because the church had to resort to violence to neutralize him and take him out, but because God's got this. God can handle the enemies of his church by converting them by planting the living, abiding, ever-growing, transformational seed of his gospel in people's hearts and lives. You see, the kingdom of God does bring division. The longer the field grows and matures, the more it's evident that there are some wheat in that field and there are some weeds in that field the seed of God and the seed of the devil is clearly evident. But the final outcome of that division is not fully implemented. The church's recourse as it looks at the field filled with the seed of Satan is to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, there will be a radical segregation at the end. Look with me at the very end of the explanation. Look at verse 41. Look at, look at verse 40, rather, 39. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Might be good in life to start with the end result and work our, our lives backwards. There will be a segregation. Those into whom the seed of Satan have been sown will reap a harvest of judgment. And yet in the meantime, there is a season of patience from our heavenly Father. The Apostle Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient. Patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is a moment, this is a season of patience from our mighty God who will inflict great wrath and justice upon all the wicked, all into whom the seed of Satan has been sown. There is a way of escape. The seed of the gospel points us to Jesus. And yet when Jesus returns again, he will not be offering salvation. We're told in the next verse of 2 Peter chapter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar. The Lamb of God will roar like the Lion of Judah. And at that moment, God's patience has terminated. This day, this moment is our opportunity to turn to Christ, and to trust only in him. This day, this moment is to see the miraculous power of God by which he snatches people from this world by his mighty hand. This is the day, this is the moment in which the God of this world who has blinded the mind of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. This is the God who has the power, who, who said, let light shine, can shine the light of the glory of the gospel in our hearts so that we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we are welcomed into his family, so we are assured of a future that says that we will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what your word says to us and teaches us. We thank you for what your word says to us and teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us, Father. Help us to cherish and believe and to live in light of the realities of the gospel Help us to be sowers, for we know that you, your son, is the sower who sows while we sow. For we pray this in Christ's name.